You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning, Roots. Uh, the elders and congregation of Laguna Hills send their affection for you all, and uh, it's, it's a delight for me to be here. As Hans says, we, we consider um, Roots a partner in the gospel along with what we are doing in, in South Orange County and Laguna Hills. Uh, Dylan and Hans and Alec have been just good friends to me as well, and it's always encouraging to partner with people who are their, their focus is set on the gospel, and so it's a delight for me to be here uh, away from our congregation. It's a, it's a challenge, but we love being with God's people wherever we're at. I told my wife when we got here, I said, oh, they have one of those pulpits where a guy my size tends to disappear behind pulpits. So, so you might find me standing a bit away from it just because I like to kind of be with my people as much as possible. And, and if you are in the family of God, then I consider you part of uh, his people and my friends. So um, I'm just re- really excited to be here as we open up the Word of God. If you have a copy of Scripture, open up to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be studying through verses 24 to 28. Um, Hans, I, don't, I didn't ask about this. Do, do you stand? I think you stand with the reading of God's Word, and we do that as well at Christ Community. So would you stand as we read the Word of God? Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God. may be seated. Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, partners regularly with the University of New York on a study that's called the American Religious Identification Survey. In this study, they track the growth, decline, or transfer of a religious affiliation in the United States. A recent study found this. 8% 8% of Christians had switched out of Christian, or, uh, Protestantism to Catholicism. But 17% of Catholics switched out of Catholicism. 19% of those surveyed were new in the Methodist churches, but 25% of them had left that year as well. 24% came into Presbyterianism, but that same year, 25% left Presbyterianism. 30% were drawn into Pentecostalism, but 19% had departed. Now, however, they said that this is not just a phenomenon that's going on within the Christian situation because in that same year, 33% of those surveyed had switched into Buddhism and 23% had switched out. Interesting. Another study from the Pew Research Institute found that in 2015, 67% to 64% of Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses had high levels of involvement in their churches or their wards, respectively. By contrast, Protestant evangelicals came in at 43% ranking high involvement with their church. Mainline Protestants came in at 20%, and Catholics, bringing up the rear, came in at 12% involvement with their parishes or churches. 
Well, if there's anything that all these numbers reveal to us, it tells us that in the United States, we tend to have a problem with commitment. Now, to be clear, when it comes to the Christian faith, there are certain things that it's actually positively good to not be overly committed to. For example, it doesn't matter if you sit in chairs or pews, right? What your facility looks like shouldn't be that big a deal, or if they even have a facility. It's not a big deal if you drink grape juice or wine during the Lord's Supper, or the forms of dress, or the kinds of music, or the kinds of programs that your church has or doesn't have. It's positively good not to be committed to those things. You see, the forms of the Christian faith and what it looks like will change in time and culture and circumstance. But the function of the Christian faith, what it means to be a disciple, cannot change. In fact, it must not change if it continues to have the name of Christian. That is exactly the message we have here in Matthew chapter 16. In these five short verses, Jesus is giving the, the kind of the mandate, the call, the reminder, the definition of what it means to be his disciple. And at the heart of it, it is a commitment to three things. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, Matthew 16 is not a passage that should be new to you. It's one of those foundational passages about discipleship. But I have found over the years that just because something's familiar doesn't necessarily mean that we understand what it's getting at. Now, I don't know if, if my friend was making this up or if this has actually happened because the story is a little bit far-fetched, but I can see it happening. He had told me that in his church, he had a Sunday school teacher that was totally committed to teaching the tenets of discipleship to his children in the class. And so passages like Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8, Luke 14, these foundational passages on discipleship were regular things that he would teach to the kids. And he often liked to teach them Thomas Shepard's hymn, Oh, the consecrated cross I bear. And he would teach this regularly to his students until one Sunday, apparently one of the, young, the mothers of a young girl had come up to the Sunday school teacher and wanted to get some clarification because of the strange song her daughter had been singing. And when she asked her about it, the daughter had said, well, I learned it from my Sunday school teacher. And so he asked, well, what's the song that she's been singing? Well, my daughter's been running around the house and singing about Oh, the constipated cross-eyed bear. Not the consecrated cross-eyed bear. So just because something is familiar and we go over it, it doesn't mean we necessarily understand it. So what I want us to do is walk back into Matthew 16 because this is such a rich passage for discipleship. But before we dig into our text, let me give you the structure of it. So look at there, verse 24. Verse 24 is the engine of this passage. It is, it is the, the, the core of what Jesus is getting at, and everything in this passage spins out of verse 24. What we find in verse 25, 26, there are two responses that Jesus is anticipating that his audience is going to have to his claims for discipleship. When we get to verse 27, 20, verse 27 is basically saying that there are consequences related to our response to discipleship, and those consequences are directly related to how we're going to respond to Jesus' commands in verse 24. Now, I give you this because while we're only looking at five verses, Jesus says a lot in these few verses, and I may or may not be able to get to every one of them, so I just want to give you the lay of the land before we jump into the, the nitty-gritty of this passage. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is, in fact, talking to his followers. 
Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, this chapter 16 is a pivot point in the narrative of Matthew's Gospel, very similar to Mark chapter 8, where this is a parallel passage. Up to this portion in the Gospel, especially in Matthew's Gospel, the, the, the talk about the Messiah, what the Messiah will do, and the bringing into the kingdom was very prominent. But like in Mark's Gospel, up to this point it's still not clear who the Messiah is. And there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception at the time of who and what the Messiah would be about. And in Matthew 16, it becomes a crescendo where Jesus himself even asks the question, who do people say that I am? And he gets different responses. Some people say Elijah. Some people say John the Baptist. Some people say some, one of the prophets come back. And then Jesus turns and asks his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And in Matthew 16, we have that amazing passage, just like in Mark 8, where Peter, that bold disciple, yells out, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, Well done. Man has not revealed this to you. Peter understands that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, here's the challenge. If you've been a Christian any longer than a year or two, we have the tendency to read back in the scriptures 2,000 years of understanding. And so when we read Jesus, we automatically assume him to be the Messiah. Even if you're not part of a regular church, you believe, you understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Yet for them, the word Messiah, the concept of the Son of God, had a lot of other implications to it. And we see that very much in that passage because right after Peter proclaims that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus immediately now begins to teach them something that doesn't fit their paradigm, that the Messiah must suffer and must die and will raise again. And Peter, if you're familiar with the text, rebukes Jesus and says, no, that cannot happen. And then Jesus rebukes Peter saying, your mind is on the things of man, not on the things of God. And then we get to this section at verse 24 where he looks at his disciples. And in Mark's gospel, um, Peter wants Mark, as he's writing it, to understand that Jesus not only was speaking to his 12, although that is the emphasis in Matthew, Matthew 16, but he's really talking about anyone who's going to follow after him. He wants them to understand, do you want to be my disciple? then let's make sure you understand what it is to be my disciple. And so that's where we get to here in verse 24. So what we have here are the people who knew Jesus best needing to be instructed on what discipleship to Jesus means. And verse 24 is the engine of it. Do you want to know what it means to be a disciple of mine? It comes down to three things. Deny, take up, and follow me. You see that right there? Right there is in verse 24. If anyone would come after me to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's just focus on those first two words, that, that, that deny and take up. These two words, these two verbs capture, in essence, the discipleship, discipleship model we see all through the New Testament. From Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Timothy, flee from these things and follow after these things. 
Paul writing to the Thessalonians, how you turned uh, turned from idols and turned to the living God. Paul writing to the Colossians, put off these things and put on these things. There is always a negative command followed by a positive command, a turning from and turning to, a fleeing from and following after, a putting off and putting on. This discipleship dynamic we see throughout the New Testament. That there's always a negative followed by a positive. It is not a static thing. It is a dynamic thing. Discipleship doesn't stay, remain static still. It's always moving. It's always progressing. In some sense, discipleship is always an ever-receding horizon. And that shouldn't discourage us. That just encourages us that we have to keep pursuing it. Because the horizon that we're chasing after is a goal beyond anything we can imagine. That is to be like Jesus Christ himself. And so it should not be surprising that there will never become a time where you say, I've graduated. I know sometimes we have school of discipleship, but you never kind of graduate. I'm a now graduate disciple. I'm complete. Because the goal of our discipleship is to be like the master. And this side of eternity, we'll never quite get there. It's an ever-receding horizon, but it's a horizon worth pursuing. We'll unpack that a little bit more, but we see that right there when Jesus says, deny yourself take up your cross, flee from these things, follow after these, put off and put on, turn from, turn to. There's a negative and a positive. In some ways, these two, um, the, the third one, deny yourself, pick up and follow me. In some ways, the following Jesus is both a result of the first two as well as the process of being a disciple. So following Jesus is both part of the process of being a disciple, but it's also a result of your discipleship. What do I mean by that? In the, the text of the, the scripture there, in the original language in Greek, the verbs that we use to translate deny and pick up are what's called eris verbs. All that simply means is that the emphasis is on a point in time, an, an action that you did. And yet the verb that we translate follow me is what's called present indicative. It's a, it's a present ongoing action. The idea being the one who denies and the one who picks up is the one who is following after. In other words, to follow after Jesus is to deny yourself and to pick up your cross. In one way, it, there, there, it's, it's two separate actions that result in the third, even though the third is part of the process. So what is it to follow Jesus? Jesus says it means to deny yourself. What is it to follow Jesus? Jesus says it is to take up his cross. What is it to follow Jesus? It is to follow Jesus. However imperfect you might be denying yourself, however imperfect you might be following after, that's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not so much saying the the quality of your denial or your taking up, but that you're doing it. I hope that's encouraging. Because so often we can gauge our sanctification in absolute standards, right? Especially if you're surrounded by godly people always pursuing it. You can feel that your discipleship falters because you're not as maybe righteous as this person. You're not denying yourself as much as this person or taking up your cross as much as this person. And you can get discouraged and the enemy can beat you down. But the reality is, however you're denying yourself, however you're taking up his cross, that's what it means to follow after Jesus. Let me give some practical shape to this. What does it mean to deny and take up? These three verbs here in verse 24, deny, take up, and follow, they map on perfectly to what I call the dynamics of change. In other words, 
understood correctly these words to, to, to deny, to take up, to follow after, describe how God changes us as his disciples. If you're a note taker, write down that this, this, these words, these three verbs, deny, take up, follow after, they're almost like theological shorthand for a lot of what the rest of the New Testament talks about the process of change and discipleship. Words you might be more familiar from Paul's letters, repentance, faith, obedience. This is the same kind of thing we see in the Gospels, maybe not using those exact words, but Jesus is talking about the same things. In denying and taking up and following after, he's talking about repentance, faith, and obedience. So let's unpack them one at a time. When Jesus says, deny ourselves, what I like to say is not just repentance, but I like to use this phrase, intelligent repentance. Because repentance means what? To turn from something, a 180 degree. And that's true. We must always be living a life of repentance. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the first of the 95 theses that he uh, nailed to the the castle uh, door, said that all of life is repentance and faith. All of life is repentance and faith. We're always turning from things. We're always putting off, right? So that repentance cannot always be in the abstract. It's got to be thoughtful. It's got to be specific. What are the things that we are putting down? What are the things that we are putting off? What are the things we're fleeing from? What are the things we're turning from? I want to give you some examples that go from maybe the obvious to the subtle. And I'm not saying easy to the hard, because in a culture like ours of self-indulgence, any kind of self-denial can be a challenge. So what I want to do is give you some examples of what denying ourselves might look like that, that have many layers and facets to it. And some of them are just obvious. Some of the things that they're just, they're clear to see. And some of them are a little bit more subtle. So let's talk about some ways that denial uh, of discipleship to Christ can look like. And let me just start with a practical one. Um, although Roots, this is great. Your service starts at 10 o'clock, uh, which is really nice because sometimes waking up on a Sunday to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day can be a bit of a challenge. I had a church where our first service was 8 a.m. And so, you know, you were getting up at 7 o'clock to get to the 8 a.m. service. That in and of itself is a form of denial, isn't it? Now, it's not a big denial, but for some of you, waking up at 8 a.m. can be a bit of a challenge, right? And that is a kind of denial of, of, of putting away something you'd rather do for yourself. So getting up early on a Sunday morning, even giving your day as the Lord's Day is itself countercultural in our society. As Laura and I were driving up here, I said, babe, I did, there's more traffic on the road than I would have anticipated on a Sunday morning. She says, Rick, for, for people who aren't believers, Sunday is the day they're going to do their thing. And so everyone else is on the road doing their thing. Just attending church with the Lord's people is a witness to a world that Sunday is their day. It's not the Lord's day. But getting up early on a Sunday morning, helping with the diaconate, helping the deacon ministry set up is a form of self-denial. What about giving regularly regularly to the work of your local church? How about becoming a member and, and, and signing a church covenant Right? Literally putting your name to a document that says, I'm going to be a gospel worker along with this covenant community for the good of Costa Mesa and beyond. Those are all forms of self-denial. Giving up sleep, giving up resources, giving up time. Friends, in a society that prizes autonomy and personal freedom, 
those are all examples of denying yourself, isn't it? And every one of them are important. Every one of them are important, especially if you're a new convert or you're immature in your faith. And I don't mean to say immature like a, a seventh grade immature kind of thing. I don't mean it pejoratively. I mean, you're just new. You're growing as a Christian. You need these structures to give your faith a system that it can grow with. The importance of church, uh, church membership especially if you're a new convert. Being part of a member of a local church, having those structures are so good. But if you're denying yourself consistently this way, you're getting up at 8 a.m. or whatever it is to get to the Lord's Day to help uh, Lindsay and help uh, um, I just Kyle this morning to be deacons. You're going to do that. And maybe that first couple of months, it's really hard. But maybe in six months, it's not as hard as it once was. And now you're waking up even 30 minutes earlier. Maybe you're not helping out with the deacons. Maybe you're just waking up 30 minutes earlier to help, help your wife with the kids get ready for church. Maybe you're just waking up earlier because you're going to read that passage of Scripture, prepare your heart for the Lord's Day. Maybe that's not it. Maybe you're waking up earlier because there's a brother or sister in Christ from your congregation that lives 10 minutes out of your way that just needs help getting to church. And you're going to deny yourself that sleep so you can serve them. Or maybe you just steward your Saturday night differently. You don't stay up till midnight or 1 a.m., so waking up Sunday morning is so hard. You're going to go to bed a little bit early. It can look all kinds of practical ways. Maybe it means pulling out your clothes the night before church so that Sunday morning isn't so frenzied. Maybe when it comes to financially supporting the work of this local church, maybe, maybe the time it takes between when the, the, the call to give and when you reach for your wallet gets a little bit shorter or your purse or your checkbook. Well, who has a checkbook? Your Venmo app or whatever giving app you use to give, maybe that time gets shorter. Or maybe the time is just as long, but the giving will be bigger. Right? There's, there's so many ways you can learn to d- deny yourself in something that you're doing regularly every week. For me, um, it was the music at my church. When I first started going to a church, I grew up, as Han said, I moved here in 1990, 91, to become a rock star. That why, is why I left Hawaii, and I thought that's what I was going to do with my life. And I grew up playing screamo music, either Donho music or screamo music, and I wanted to do that in Los Angeles. And so I came to L.A. to make it big. And the Lord brought me to himself, and I'm, I'm in a church and they don't play metal or, you know, they, they just play, it was a church that sang hymns. And for a young man who grew up playing screamo music, hymns was not my thing. And I remember thinking, I got to find a different church because I cannot get this. And this was the Holy Spirit's kindness to me. I looked around the room and realized, if all these people who seem to me godly and getting their, doing what they need to be doing are engaging with this music, maybe the problem isn't the music, maybe the problem is me. And that was true. And I learned at that church to ignore the music, but listen to what they sang. And I grew a love for hymns as a result of that. My point is simply this. There are so many ways we can learn to deny ourselves and give us opportunities for growth. Now, these are important examples of denial, but these, this isn't the kind of radical denial that Christ is talking about here in Matthew chapter 16. 
Because at the end of the day, someone could easily get out of bed. Someone could set up some kind of online giving. And then, or they could do these things simply because of practice or years of doing it. And their hearts not be in it. Their hearts could be as far from God as the person who sleeps in or never gives at all. Right? Because behaviors can be faked. Behaviors can be conditioned. Behaviors can be done without the heart being changed. And the gospel and discipleship is about the heart being changed. And that's what Christ is getting at. Let me read to you C.S. Lewis. He was an Oxford uh, professor. He says this about our hearts being changed, what Christ wants from us. Lewis writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. What's Lewis saying here? What Lewis is getting at is that Christ wants us to deny the impulse that we all feel to turn inward or become sullen or get angry when your husband or wife or your best friend snubs you. That's what he wants you to deny. Christ wants you to deny the impulse to escape into your YouTube channels or your social media or your various hobbies when life becomes hard and pressures push in at your breaking points and you need a refuge. Christ wants you to deny taking refuge in your entertainments or your YouTube. Christ wants you to deny the impulse to engage in gossip and slander because you feel wronged or betrayed. Christ wants you to deny the impulse to take refuge in a bag of M&Ms because you long for security or comfort. And rather than finding it in him, you find it in food, shopping, entertainment, sports, video games, you name it. Christ wants you to deny the oh-so-human impulse to believe that you are at the center of the universe That your priorities are the only priorities that matter to put yourself first. You see, that's what Christ is calling us to deny. And the reason it's so hard to deny is we want what we want. We want what we want, don't we? What the heart, what the heart wants, the mind finds reasonable The emotions will find valuable and the will will find doable. But Christ calls us to deny ourselves these things. Now, let's get back to the text. What was it that that Christ wanted these disciples to deny? They have a very different situation than ours on the surface, but in the heart it's very similar. What did these disciples have to deny? What did Christ call them in this context to deny? What he was asking them to deny in this moment was their longing for a Messiah 
that would change their social, political, economic situation. You see, for them, the belief of a Messiah meant, oh, everything's going to change for us now. Rome's going to get overthrown, and we Jews who are oppressed and being trodden underfoot will be now elevated, will be in positions of power, and we'll have what we want. We will be the rulers. We will be the ones on top. And the Messiah is our ticket. That's why they were so excited that Jesus was the Messiah. They had believed all these things were coming to them. Well, friends, it's not unlike today that these disciples had wanted many things from Jesus, but Jesus understood that they didn't want Jesus. They just wanted things from him. You see, the thing that needed to change more than anything wasn't their situation or their place in society. The thing that needed to change was not their politics nor their politicians. The things that needed to change wasn't their financial situation. The thing that needed to change was the thing none of them wanted changed their hearts. And Jesus knew exactly that was what was going on. But this is exactly what the gospel says needs to change. Our hearts, because when our hearts change, friends, guess what? Everything changes. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not saying Jesus-type things or even necessarily doing Jesus-type things, but having a heart like Christ himself, who, as Lindsay said, did not come to be served, but came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Which is why Jesus' next command, he says, then take up your cross. If denying ourselves is this intelligent repentance, feeling where I want to go, but I'm not going to go there, taking up the cross means understanding what does the Lord say in this situation that I want to do this, but I know scripture says I should do something else. So Jesus says, take up your cross. Now, we don't have the time to get into all the nuances of what the cross meant. So let me just tease out what's important to what Jesus is teaching here. See, the reason the Romans had uh, the, the, the victims of crucifixion carry what's called the patabellum, it's that large wooden beam that you often see that the, the victims of crucifixion carrying. Yes, the cross was a symbol of death, and as Christians, we understand that. But there's also another nuance to it that's just as significant to discipleship. The reason Rome had the victims carry the patabellum was to send a very clear message to all the people who watched those marching to crucifixion that at the end of the day, this individual submits to the weight and authority of Rome. That this individual could no more overthrow the authority of the Roman government any more than they could throw off the weight of the patabellum upon their back. And all the while they walked up to the, the area where the patabellum would get, either get strapped or hammered into the other stake and then heaved up, which gave the cross image, all the way walking up there, they felt the weight and the authority of Rome. What Christ was saying was, you need to feel the weight of my authority upon your life. That's what it is to be my disciple. That's the connection Jesus is making here. Yes, we make the connection that Jesus is calling us to die to ourselves. That's absolutely right. But he's also calling us to live for him. In such a way that it's obvious to everyone, this individual is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And this individual walks in the way that Jesus has them You see, as Christians, we do not trust 
to our refuge, refuges that we might have, like our hobbies or social media or our escapes or our entertainments. God is our refuge. That's to whom we trust. We deny ourselves those other refuges and we take up him as our refuge. We don't trust in gossip or blame shifting or payback or incessant grumbling to deliver comfort or justify us. We trust Christ who justifies us and delivers us and brings us comfort. We don't trust in us. We trust in the one who's trustworthy. See, friends, this is the work of discipleship. Recognizing in 10,000 ways, both in our blessings and in our struggles, the 10,000 ways we can tend to live without any reference to Jesus and his authority in our lives. And so he says, take up the cross. We want to deny our impulses to do what we want to do. We want to live under his authority and then follow the route he lays before us, which is the final thing he says here in verse 24. He says, follow after me. So if denying ourselves is intelligent repentance, where you want to go some way, one direction, you recognize, no, no, no. What does scripture have to say about this? What does Jesus have to say about this? And then that is the direction we will go. Let me put it to you this way. If we sin in specific detail, then the gospel has to show itself in our lives with equal specificity. What do I mean by that? Yes, we sin, but that's an abstract thing. Every one of us, we sin in specifics, don't we? When that person cuts you off on the 405 and you give them the bird or you get mad or you get upset, the gospel needs to show itself there. And the only way we're going to know that is to realize when that person cuts me off on the 405 and I get mad at him, why am I getting mad at him? Because he cut me off on my freeway. What right does he have to get in front of me in my lane? Oh, I think I'm the master of the 405. I think everyone around here should drive to benefit me. I need to repent of that, right? I need to repent of that thought that what I want to do is more important. And that's why I got mad at it as an individual. And yet we need to follow after him in specific ways. The only way this is possible to do is to recognize what are the ways I'm trying to deny myself? What are the ways I'm trying to live for myself? Deny that. Understand the authority that Christ has over my life and then follow after him with specific obedience. As Galatians 6.5 says, that the, the things we do, faith working itself out in love, in order for that to happen, I have to know where I go lights out to the things of God. What does he say about that? And how then I do a walk in specific obedience? Let me give you an illustration. So when someone speaks ill of me, rather than turn inward or get angry with them and try to seek to justify myself, I'm going to deny that impulse. I'm going to trust taking up in the one who justifies me, even though what was said about me, it might be true. It might be true, right? But I'm going to trust the one who justifies me and whose, whose opinion is the only one that matters. That's what I'm going to trust in then I can pray that I don't return evil for evil, but actually return evil with good and follow after Christ in specific ways. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to hug that brother or sister the next time I see them at church, but maybe I just won't avoid them. And that's a start. And maybe as I continue to deny myself, wanting to justify myself and, and correct or challenge what they said about me, I'm going to trust what scripture says is to love them and pray for them and follow in obedience. Maybe it turns from me avoiding them to maybe in six months I can actually speak graciously to them or about them 
and thereby ending a cycle of sin and beginning a cycle of grace. Maybe your service to the Lord is overlooked while others are praised. So one situation, someone's talking about, how do I handle that? Maybe in other situations, I'm serving the Lord and I'm being overlooked, but I see other people being praised. Well, then rather than allowing a root of bitterness to take place in my heart, I deny myself that pity party, right? And I understand what scripture says, Colossians chapter three, knowing whatever I do, work heartily for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that's from the Lord, I will receive an inheritance as my reward. So I deny myself the pity party. I understand what he says, that I serve unto him, not unto men. And then I follow him with specific obedience. What does Romans chapter 12, verse 11 say? Do not be slothful in zeal, right? Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And so in all these ways, I'm denying myself, I'm taking up the cross, and I'm following after him. I just realized it's already 1130 and I have only done one verse. Okay, so let's get through this quickly. Um, this happens in my church all the time. So let me just say this. As I said earlier, I thought this might happen. Verse 25 and 26, are, Jesus is anticipating people's response to what he has just said. Deny myself, pick up my cross, that is suicide. What are you talking about? You're out of your mind. And what Jesus is offering in verse 25 and 26 is his perspective. And what he's saying is this, what, what's, what's really suicide, what is really throwing your life away is thinking and believing that you have the necessary wisdom, insight, and strength to live without him. Because even if you get all these things, it gains you nothing if you lose your soul. What Jesus is saying is what really is throwing away your life is ignoring my words. Thinking that you can have life apart from the author of life. Friends, human, uh, excuse me, history is, is full of the wreckage of human life lived without the wisdom, mercy, and grace of God. And, and, and if it's not history, just look around at the lives around you. Life is full of the human wreckage of people thinking they can live their lives without God's wisdom, without his mercy, or without his grace. I hope it's a little bit clear. I, I can't get to the rest of the verses why, why I began to talk about commitment because at the end of the day, what Jesus asked for us is not easy, nor does it come naturally to us. But the good news is Jesus understands and doesn't ask of any of his disciples what was not asked of him. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, just a few chapters later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had to deny himself, didn't he? I think it's Matthew 26 and John, in John's gospel, Jesus literally says, Father, if there's any other way that this can happen, let this cup pass, but not as I want, not as I will, but your will. He denied himself and literally picked up a cross, submitting to the will of his Father, and was obedient under unto death. And why did Christ do that? Friends, ultimately, Christ did that ultimately so that when his father denied him upon a cross, that his same father would not deny any of us. That when he carried his cross that would lead to his death, his cross would lead to your life. And when we follow him as he commands us, it would be led to eternal life and reward. That's a discipleship. That is a Lord we can be and must be committed to.